Hi, I'm Eric Gurna, Executive Director of Development Without Limits, and this is Please Speak Freely, the podcast where we have honest conversations about youth development and education. Welcome again to Please Speak Freely. I'm Eric Gurna, and I'm here in New York City with Michelle Yanchi, who is the Assistant Executive Director for Government and External Relations for Good Shepherd Services, which is a leading youth development education and family service agency here in New York City. So welcome, Michelle. Glad to be here. You know, I, I was thinking um, just before you came that how um, strangely serendipitous and sort of fitting it is that uh, we're doing this today, um, because... I naturally want to dedicate this episode to the memory of Richard Murphy, um, who I, I know from, uh, I saw you from a distance at the funeral on Saturday. I was behind you, so I doubt you saw me. Um, I know just from your work for so many years at the Neighborhood Family Services Coalition that you must have worked very closely with him. Um, and I got to work very closely with him in the past few years. And uh, I am eager to hear about that um, that so the sort of origin story of that work, um, the, the beginning years of that work, which I wasn't around for. Um, and, you know, maybe we could also talk a little bit about Murphy's role in that. I hope to do uh, a future podcast, which is a tribute to him, um, talking to different people about him, because I was he was actually supposed to be my next interview. Mm. Um, and I had that conversation a little too late. And, um, you know, he, he took ill and passed away so suddenly, and I didn't get to do it. And first of all, it was a big lesson for me um, about being able to talk to people when you have the chance. Um, but, you know, I can't go back in time, but what I can do is is honor his his memory and his work um, by having, I, I think, by having conversations with, with people who still um, are carrying on his spirit, really. Um, and not, and it's really not just his spirit. It's the the spirit of of organizing and activism for young people um, that is you know transcends just any one person. Um, so, you know, with that, I don't mean to start in it with a heavy tone. And I and I know you can probably hear in my voice that it, I'm still very sad about this, as I'm sure you are. Um, but you know, maybe we could just start out with thinking about uh, your your initial work with Murphy and others starting the Neighborhood Family Services Coalition. And then we'll sort of come back to, your, you know, what you do now. I imagine it's a real evolution from then till now. But could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, my work today, and even the, the mere fact that I'm sitting here, uh, is very much a journey that leads back to Richard Murphy and to his work. I started in 1993 at Neighborhood Family Services Coalition uh, when the organization itself was about 13 years old already, and Richard Murphy himself had already moved on uh, to being the commissioner of what was then called the Department of Youth Services in the Dinkins administration. Mm. But he and some of his dear colleagues, including Sister Paulette Lamonaco, who is the executive director of Good Shepherd Services, Jean Thomasis, who was then an assistant executive director at Good Shepherd, Jim Marley, who was then leading the North Bronx Family Service Center of Pius XII in the Bronx, Jeff Canada, who worked at Reedland uh, under Reedland, which is another organization that was founded by Richard uh, and is now better known as the Harlem Children's Zone, uh, all started Neighborhood Family Services Coalition together coming out of their experience 
uh, in the 1970s fiscal crisis when there were such deep cuts in the city budget to youth services and also at the state level. They really recognized as service providers the need to have an advocacy voice that worked specifically on youth development that was able to sort of fill that gap between government and service providers in bringing information from what was happening at City Hall in Albany to the organizations that were working directly with the children and families most affected by those proposals, uh, in, in that case specifically cuts, but also legislative and policy proposals, so that those individuals, the service providers, as well as most importantly the families and the young people, would be able to have a voice in the decisions that were being made that would affect them. And it was in that spirit that they founded Neighborhood Family Services Coalition. I started very haphazardly. Um, I suppose many of our professional journeys start this way, uh, coming out of college, not knowing what I wanted to do. Uh, <laughs> and I happened to know, uh, through a, as a friend of a friend, the person that was working at Neighborhood Family Services Coalition at that time and was about to leave uh, to travel. And uh, I had just made an offhanded comment saying, I wish that I was planning a trip rather than looking for a job. And she <laughs> said, why don't you apply for my job? And uh, I did. And that is really how I find myself today, uh, having had a career as a youth advocate uh, through 17 years of work at Neighborhood Family Services Coalition and now continuing that at Good Shepherd Services, uh, but still working with so many of the colleagues and particularly for the causes that Richard Murphy was such a leader uh, in New York City and across the country. Mm -hmm. And I I think I had the history mixed up a little bit. Um, I thought that the, the coalition was was founded at that time. So it was founded when? In 1980. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. I didn't know it went back that far. Yes. I guess yes. I should do more preparation was, for these things. I, many people uh, have asked whether I was involved in the founding. And I said instead, no, I was myself a young person yes. <laughs> at that time. Yes. Um, and, you know, looking back from your work starting in 93 with Neighborhood Family Services Coalition um, till the work you currently do, I'm wondering how you see the um, the sort of coalition building amongst organizations that do work with young people and families and communities. How has that changed um, how those organizations come together? Um, I, th- I feel like New York City more than anywhere else um, that I've been is this, there's just this universe of social services, human services, youth, youth services with so many players and so many big organizations, so many small ones. Um, and there are multiple intermediaries and coalitions. Um, so I'm kind of wondering how, you know, you've got this great historical context to it. You know, how has that coalition sort of approach grown? You know, I don't know that it has. My own experience in forming coalitions myself or being part of a group of colleagues who come together to form a campaign or a coalition is very much the same as the story that has been told to me so many times about the formation of Neighborhood Family Services Coalition. Really, uh, I think it emerges from a group of colleagues who are experiencing similar challenges uh, or are working on the same issue, coming together primarily through their own relationships as colleagues and deciding that there's strength in numbers, uh, working together to have a united approach and uh, a single message. And that's very much the same methodology that brings so many coalitions and efforts together mm-hmm. from neighborhood family services coalition through sort of my work in the 90s creating the campaign for summer jobs 
the coalitions and networks of, of today that are very active, including the New York City Youth Alliance. And then last year, the coming together of youth services providers and advocates with child care providers and advocates to form the Campaign for Children. It's uh, really colleagues realizing that our voice will be stronger united. And tell us a little bit about that that recent work with the Campaign for Children. Um, there was a, you know, f- for the for those of you who are not in New York City, there was a lot of action over the last year around advocating for. Um, f- I was going to say funding. It's it's really advocating for restoring threatened cuts to funding. Is that right? I think it was really the threatened cuts to funding that spurred us to create the campaign and come together. But mm-hmm. our battle is really greater than just fighting against cuts to programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, our voice, we certainly have to lend to the fight against budget cuts because mm-hmm. keeping programs whole is important. Uh, that's the base. But our work is really very much focused on a vision for how child care and after-school programs going forward in the future can be part of a more cohesive system, um, most importantly to provide sustainable uh, and uh, high-quality programs for children and and families. Mm -hmm. And so uh, fighting against cuts is obviously an important part of that battle, um, but really building towards a better system in the future is what our ultimate goal is. So what does that better system look like? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, There are many conversations among uh, us right now, uh, working with all stakeholders to try and really articulate what our vision of a system might be. Uh, We're trying to put together a list of principles about, you know, what are the what are the primary factors that should drive decision making about the creation of that system. But it's really going to take probably months and many, many more voices to actually be able to put forward uh, that vision publicly. So if you could just put that vision forth yourself Mm -hmm. without the the benefit and the challenge of of all these voices being involved, what are some of the things that you would want to have, that you would want to see in in an ideal vision for, for an improved system? Well, going back to the idea of the issue of budget cuts, certainly the first thing is stable funding. Uh, I think that through my years at Neighborhood Family Services Coalition and continuing in my work today, I have spent many, many days and nights on the steps of City Hall fighting for sometimes the same dollars year Mm -hmm. after year because cuts that are restored are often only restored for one year at a time. And so a fundamental part of that vision and a fundamental principle has to be the stability of funding so that, most importantly, families can depend on the services that they have and Mm -hmm. that won't be receiving the equivalent of the pink slip every year saying your program is at risk of closing. So not only fighting against the budget cuts in a current year, but fighting for a sustainable system of funding is, is primary. But beyond that, really having a system that incorporates uh, high-quality staff, training for all professionals who touch the system, to be able to expand the capacity of, of the system. And while we fight for the very valuable dollars that are at risk right now, we also recognize that the need for these services continues to dwarf the capacity. And so designing a system that can expand to meet the need uh, and also expand in a way that 
allows families in, uh, in, in different kinds of communities to participate in the system regardless of what their income may be, regardless of age, uh, so that a family can have seamless care from, uh, from preschool, Head Start, child, early childhood education through after school, and that, uh, that a family uh, can really depend on those systems as their children age. Mm-hmm. When, when you say that they could have access to the, the services in the system regardless of what their income might be, it brings to mind for me um, uh, something I think about occasionally, which is that you know all of the programs that we work with, and I, I believe all the programs you advocate for, <clears throat> are, are grant-funded programs or city, you know, public dollars funded, often private dollars involved as well. But they're aimed at economically poor um, neighborhoods and families. Um, and while obviously we are advocating for for those programs and and working on behalf of those programs, there's also part of that system is a real segregation along class lines. So that the summer programs that middle class and, and wealthier kids participate in are different programs than the programs that economically poorer kids participate in. And I'm wondering, does, does that notion ever come up in these in these policy conversations? Is it? Do you understand what I'm getting at? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's an issue that I think we increasingly recognize needs to be tackled. Mm especially as some communities begin to gentrify and mm-hmm. change their demographics to really be able to think about what are some creative ways and creative ways to finance programs that could incorporate families and children who live in a single neighborhood but across income lines. Right. So um, potentially implementing a system with sliding scale fee where some young people would have their carefully subsidized and others in the same community might be able to pay a fee that is in accordance with their own family's income. Right. Having blended programs and, uh, and, and really looking at a way to ramp up a cohesive system that could serve young people in any family in any community in New York City. And what, what's the benefit that you see of having the having the blending happening? Well, primarily being able to serve more children. That mm-hmm. certainly is. Um, I think that it probably would not be possible to fully finance with public dollars a system that really served or was accessible to all of New York City's children. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I also think that... Um, there's a political value in having more families invested in the system, uh, creating a system that has more of a populist uh, stake mm-hmm. so that it would be harder to cut these programs when, when whether fiscal times are, are good or bad, these systems always are on the chopping block, primarily because uh, in the great scheme of what New York City has to support, they're considered more discretionary. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to pay for debt service. We have to pay... Uh, for fixed costs and child care and after school are often in that category of programs that that can be cut so sometimes they do get mm-hmm. proposed for cuts uh, having more new yorkers uh, with a stake in the system would make it more difficult to continue to have these same programs bearing the burden of cuts year mm-hmm. after year um, i also think that um, really having the ability to serve a community regardless of its population is something that is particularly important in New York City because of how diverse our neighborhoods are. And New York City is a system, uh, is a city of neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So um, New York City has to think, I think, sometimes more creatively than smaller cities or more homogenous mm-hmm. locations uh, throughout New York or the rest of the country. 
it's interesting because I hadn't thought about some of those things about the political support and the, the blending the programs, giving you a more solid base of support like that. Um, and what, what, the way that I think about that is also about like the difference between what I see as a publicly funded program and a truly public program. You know, that there's um, someone just a, a friend of mine uh, who it's a couple that they both have very good, well-paying jobs and they're uh, – son is going to come living with them um, soon. He's not living with them now. He's living out of state. He's going to come living with them soon. He's about 13, and they wrote me asking for recommendations for after-school programs and, and possibly summer program. And, you know, I was, I was thinking about it, and it was like the programs that I know of, I don't even know if they can access them or if they can. I don't know if they'd want to. I don't know if they'd even be comfortable um, because it would be uh, culturally for them stepping over stepping across a line that they're not used to stepping over. And by culturally, I mean in terms of the um, the in- income of the, the, the class level, really, of the, the group um, of families and, and young people who are participating in that program. And it, it got me to thinking about this same issue. Like, you know, when we have a chance, when when all young people in a neighborhood can just attend the same community center or program or whatever, it makes them all feel like they belong, right? As opposed to, I belong here and you belong there. I do want to add that there are some organizations in New York City, especially those that are in neighborhoods where they want to serve the whole community, and it's a blended community, that have figured out ways to serve the community, but sometimes their ability to uh, do so in a single program is hampered by the rules and regulations that govern public funding and the Pro, specifically the prohibition of program fees mm-hmm. to participants. Right. And what that sometimes means then is creating artificial, uh, artificially segregated uh, programs where you have one program that is for fee-paying or sliding-scale fee-paying participants and separately a second program that's funded with public dollars uh, that is for um, non-fee-paying families. And What's particularly unfortunate about that is that when there are budget cuts, it is uh, only a portion of the children in a community that uh, are affected and and also um, gives the organization fewer options about how to – uh, how to adapt their financing to be able to continue to provide the services for all of the young people than they would have if there was abil- an ability to blend uh, and create a more seamless program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. I never really thought about that. I always thought about like the grants that say you can't charge fees. I thought, oh, that's good. They, it has to give free services, but it actually hampers the organization's ability to create blended, blended programs. Uh, getting back to... Um, this notion of having stable funding. You mentioned the importance of that for for families, and that's pretty clear. Um, but can you talk a little bit more about the importance of it for um, for organizations and programs? Is there a um, relationship between the instability of funding from year to year and program quality? Oh, absolutely. Well, certainly the first and foremost uh, issue to raise is the impact that it has on staff. Uh, understandably, when a person's job is threatened by the ability to predict the continuity of funding into the next fiscal year, we as as employers are governed by the same rules as all employers as we should be. But that means providing a a pink slip to your employees to let them know that their job uh, is not secure past a certain point. Even if we anticipate that with advocacy, 
these funds will be restored and the program will be restored, we're still required uh, to provide that sort of alert to staff that their job is potentially ending mm-hmm. within sometimes you know a, a short period of time. Our our employees, like everyone, uh, are are worried and concerned about their the stability of their own jobs, mm-hmm. and so. When we have to alert our staff that their job is not secure past a certain point in time, even if we believe that uh, the funds might be restored and the program will continue, uh, it does have the impact that staff in every year do turnover at a greater level than they would if they knew that their job was going to be secure. So these cuts that are proposed, even when they are ultimately restored, are not without impact because organizations have to alert staff that their jobs may not be secure. And many staff people, no matter how much they may want to continue with the organization, will seek out other jobs for the sake of having financial stability. And that's completely understandable. As you know, for you know, child care and after-school programs, like so many other human service programs, staff continuity and the ability to provide an enduring relationship to the participant is a fundamental part of program quality. And when we lose staff because of the instability of public funds, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a very regrettable uh, impact uh, on our program participants primarily, as well as for our organization, because you know having to rehire and having to train again uh, also has incurs costs on the organization. So it's it's also a, an issue of inefficiency, because uh, there are the impacts that drive additional policies, procedures, and program costs that wouldn't be necessary if the funds were secure. And as I said, and this is often in a situation where those funds do get restored, mm-hmm. and the funds do continue, but you cannot be sure that it will happen. I should also add that the reality is, is that cuts are sometimes not restored. And there is an erosion of program resources, uh, and there's an erosion of staff and and even participants that ultimately leave because we can't assure the continuity of service. And talking about inefficiency, not not to mention all the time that um, staff are spending, as you said, on the steps of City Hall, right? I mean, there's, there's so much. Watching this campaign for children and being able to participate a little bit uh, activity over the last year, it was amazing to me how many people hours are being spent, whether it's after hours or not, whether people are actually getting paid for that part of their work or not. So much energy being spent towards fighting to keep what they were told was going to be there in the first place. It's a double-edged sword um, because for me, having the uh, front row seat of watching young people, families, and communities become engaged in the governmental process to understand the impact of proposals on their lives and act in a positive way to give voice Mm -hmm. uh, to their interests and to bring that voice to the halls of government is a really inspirational and empowering thing to see. And that has always been something that really um, drives me in my work. However, it comes at an enormous cost yeah. to them and to the to the fabric of communities to have to mount this incredible effort to save really baseline fundamental services year after year after year. And, 
certainly there are people like myself whose job it is to walk the halls of, of City Hall and to stand on the steps and advocate. But also, there are so many important issues and so many needs that we see in our communities that need that voice, that need our advocacy efforts. And and sometimes it's impossible to be able to devote the time and energy to some of the proactive uh, advocacy efforts that are needed because we must first and foremost preserve what already exists. Mm -hmm. And so um, it is unfortunate that so much of our effort and energy and our voice is expended just to maintain what currently exists and not to build for something that's better. And yeah. my hope is that in the future, we can change some of this dynamic. And in particular, I'm very hopeful that with the new mayor, we may be able to uh, to turn some of this around and uh, not have to expend so much energy just maintaining mm-hmm. what is. Mm-hmm. Um some of it isn't even driven by uh, uh, policymakers or um, elected officials. Some of it, some of the um, craziness around instability of funding, it can sometimes just be driven by more bureaucratic functionaries. What I'm thinking of specifically, and I don't know how common this is, but uh, last year at, in New York State, there was um, there was in place the th- we were in the third year of a, th- a three year 21st century community learning center contract cycle and that came to an end and then it was announced that it there would be a year extension um but at a 70 or 60 percent um of what was the original contract the the contract way back when was supposed to be five years then they cut it to three three years went up and they said oh you can have one more year but at less funding that didn't come from any elected official or um you know uh legislative act, as far as I know, it came from the state education department itself. Um, You know, I know that many organizations had to lay off staff and then rehire them or rehire somebody and um, figure out what to do with all the stuff that they had moved around and everything else. The same sort of running in place that you were just describing or scrambling just to keep what what, um, was baseline and even cut back at that. Um, How common is that aspect of uh, the instability and really what i want to ask is what is going on like how is that kind of thing happening in our system no question procurement itself plays a very big role in programmatic upheaval and instability i think that it is very different at different levels of government uh there is no level of government that's not without its challenges uh and you know uh, my hope is that we can put some of our collective efforts in the future to improving the procurement process for human services overall, in particular also childcare and after school, to make sure that the procurement process doesn't stand in the way or create additional obstacles to program quality and stability. In New York City, um, it is the norm that the city will fully fund an extension of contracts if there is a delay in the procurement process. And so uh, that, I think, is a policy that's important and that should really be replicated to whatever degree possible. Some of the problems with the 21st century also relate to um, just the way that that funding flows and the there's sort of different rounds that have different levels of funding, and that creates uh, instability in and of itself. The most important thing from my perspective is creating a, a, a predictable 
and um, an efficient procurement process. Some of the most difficult issues that organizations pr- uh, experience in human service contract delivery is related to just delays, delays in not only the awarding of contracts through the procurement, but getting those contracts registered and then being able to see some of the funding flowing. And anyone who works in, uh, in, in this sector knows the intractable issues that uh, come with the procurement process. Mm-hmm. So there's certainly a lot of work to be done there. And that is an example of, of a, an area that I'd like to be, devote some proactive energy uh, and time uh, that sometimes gets diverted just to maintaining the baseline of resources. Mm-hmm. And, and then something you keep, a theme you keep coming back to is this, this notion that so much of your energy has to go to maintaining the baseline, right? So I'm wondering, you've, you've been doing this you know, first the Neighborhood Family Services Coalition, and now a Good Shepherd uh, for twenty years. Twenty years, yeah. Look at that. I was quickly doing the math, not so quickly. Um, for twenty years, yes. And um, from what I can tell from following you on Twitter and from seeing you around, you still have a lot of energy and passion for for continuing this work. And so I'm just wondering, how do you keep? How do you have the energy to keep fighting the same? What's what feels like the same fight over and over again? Um, without getting down. And I'm sure you do get down, but how do you have the energy to maintain that? I do get down, and I know that, that my colleagues, anyone who is in, who is in this work, does get down. Uh, and the reality is, is that we know that we're often fighting for the same dollar that we fought for last year and the year before that and the year before that. I have joked that my epitaph will be, you know, she spent 50 years on the steps of City Hall fighting for the same youth services dollar. <laughs> uh, I hope that that ultimately won't be true. One of the most important ways that I keep my energy up is spending some time between budget cycles visiting programs. Mm. That, to me, is really the most inspirational thing, is to go out go out to Good Shepherd Services after-school programs, to other programs throughout the city, and see the young people engaged in those activities that we are fighting for the funding to support. Mm-hmm. That is what keeps me motivated, mm-hmm. is reminding myself of what matters and why I'm doing this work because it's very easy to get uh, to get disengaged from that when you are you know walking the hall at City Hall or standing on the steps where it seems very far away from the reality of the three to six after school program and what's happening for young people on the ground and mm-hmm. so making sure I get back there and then I can see uh, and and lend some of my energy to volunteer and see young people enjoying the after-school program experience, getting homework help, being exposed to arts and cultural experiences, getting recreation, having a whole range of experiences that they would not have but for the existence of these programs. That keeps me motivated. It reminds me of why we do this. A lot of people who work in advocacy Throughout their career, they hop from issue to issue to some degree. Um, and what they're, what they're expert in is advocating, um, but they're not necessarily driven by a part- one particular issue or cause or, or area. You've stuck with this youth and family services um, for, for your whole career up to now. Um, um, you mentioned that you found, you sort of fell into the job, um, but what what led you or what continues to lead you to focus your energies on this issue above all else? 
the thing that that led me first and foremost to doing this work was the experience of being a young person myself and having an after school program hmm. and how important that experience was for me. When I was in college, I wanted to give back and I volunteered in an after school program in the Bronx while I was at Fordham. Mm-hmm. And that taught me two important lessons. One was a reminder of how incredibly important these programs are to young people. And I was able to see that from a different vantage point. The other was the knowledge that I was not cut out to be an after school or any other human service provider, uh, direct frontline staff person myself. And um, I was very interested in, in politics and governmental processes, but I knew that I wanted to put those talents towards making sure that other young people and other families had the ability to experience those very positive supports in their communities the way that I had. Hmm. And, uh, and that's why it was a match, you know, in, in, in finding my way to Neighborhood Family Services Coalition and uh, now working at Good Shepherd Services, which is a service provider, but in a, uh, a capacity that is focused on government relations and advocacy, I'm able to sort of marry my dual interests and put the talents that I have to use to support uh, the programs that I want to continue to work to ensure exist for children and families. What made you uh, realize or feel that you weren't cut out for, for direct service work? I just, um, my, my own children will probably be able to attest to this one. I just don't have the patience that is, uh, I think, required of individuals who, who are working directly with participants. It's, it's just not my strength. And I'm very fortunate that I was able to learn that early. I always found myself, uh, you know, even, even in those days back in the after-school program in the Bronx that I volunteered for, uh, there were budget cuts to be fought. And I always found myself gravitating to working on the letter writing campaign, mm-hmm. uh, working on making the going to the office to make phone calls in support of uh, maintaining the funding. And that was probably my first clue that this was an area that was more of a match for me. Mm-hmm. If it's not too personal, do you, um, could you describe a little bit your, your own experience in an after-school program? You said that that was what sort of you know, made, made you connect in the first place. I grew up uh, in in Pennsylvania in a, uh-huh. in a rural community. Uh, my mother died when I was very young, and I was raised by my dad, uh-huh. one of the few people in the world who was raised by a single dad. Uh-huh. And uh, my father worked. He worked at Bethlehem Steel in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, uh-huh. and he often uh, was unable to be home to pick me up from school. And I needed to be in an after-school program or find a neighbor or some other way for me to be safe after school. And uh, my church offered an after-school program, and I was able to uh, participate in the after-school program. I, I, I went to a parish school, and mm-hmm. so it was a seamless transition for myself. And, uh, and so you know, it, was, it was just a fun program. For me, it was just fun. It was... Uh, doing all of those fun things that kids love to do, arts and sports and, uh, and homework, and, uh, and then making it possible for my father to pick me up after school rather than having to be home alone or be with a neighbor or, uh, or some other kind of arrangement that, uh, that I really, you know, I didn't like. 
Oh, it's it's amazing to find out how people came to this field because, like you said, so many people fall into it, and it's you know most people don't say I want to be a youth advocate when I grow up, or mm-hmm. you know for me getting into staff development, I, it's not like when I was a kid I thought about thought about wanting to you know help youth workers and educators improve their skills or something. You know, I didn't even know um, advocacy existed as no. a field. As I said, if I hadn't yeah. had that fateful conversation with the person that had the job before me, I, I, I'm not sure what path. Yeah my professional life would have taken. Yeah. And getting back to the connection to Richard Murphy, you know, it's, um, I also had a very early um, uh, affiliation with his work, not even with him directly, just as you did. It's kind of a parallel experience. One of my first jobs in the field um, after working for, for summer camps and things like that was working for Reedland um, in the mid-90s. And Murphy had already moved on. He was at AED in, in D.C., I think, at that point. But... Um, you know, he had founded Reedland and hired Jeff Canada, and Jeff Canada had eventually took over when he became commissioner. But so I got to see what a, uh, a youth program that really uh, approaches young people as resources, first and foremost, um, is like. And that set me up, you know, I said, this is what I want to do, you know. Um, so I think it's um, it's fitting, and I think that, that he would appreciate that, that you and I are having this conversation and, and recording it um, in in his honor, um, I think that's where we first met. <laughs> was Reedland? Uh-huh. That may have been. Because my yeah. office, the Neighborhood Family Services Coalition office was at Reedland for okay. for most of uh, the first two decades of its existence. Yeah, okay. Interesting. Interesting how paths cross. Well, Michelle, I really want to thank you for, for taking the time to be on Please Speak Freely. Um, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of this, and probably mentioned a couple times, uh, it, it is fitting that this would be um, the first episode, at least, that I'm able to dedicate to the memory of Richard Murphy, um, I, I think that uh, the field appreciates the work that, that you're doing. Um, you probably don't get to feel that appreciation all the time because it's such uh, can be such thankless work advocacy. Um, but I want to um, publicly thank you for the work that you do on behalf of young people and families and community organizations. I did also want to add that uh, I did work with Murphy in my in, in my capacity as uh, being on, on staff at Neighborhood Family Services Coalition because he was at the Department of Youth Services. Meeting with Richard Murphy at the Department of Youth Services at 44 Court Street was one of my first acts as mm. a an employee at all, but as a member of the staff of Neighborhood Family Services Coalition. And uh, he was very much always an advocate from being in his role at, as director of Reedland to helping found Neighborhood Family Services Coalition and even at the Department of Youth Services. He was primarily an advocate for young people. He understood what it meant to wear different hats, but advocacy was something that drove him and giving voice to uh, individuals was a passion. And I very much feel like I'm continuing some of that journey for him. Mm-hmm. And he, Richard Murphy was one of my mentors in my professional life and, and also a dear friend. So I owe not only the fact that I am where I am to Richard Murphy and his legacy uh, in creating Neighborhood Family Services Coalition, which gave me my first job and set me uh, on a path to a career that I've loved and uh, that has enabled me to make a contribution in the city is something that I very much owe to Richard Murphy. Well, that's really saying something, and it, I think it's a fitting way to end. Thanks very much. My pleasure. <laughs>